with me first to Hebrews 10. We have a short New Testament reading, followed by a reading of seven verses in Leviticus 7. Hebrews chapter 10. Oh, that's not correct. Hebrews chapter 12. Last week, we heard a message from 2 Kings 22 on the life of Josiah and how it is the Lord's will to reform his church by the word. Today, we hear another message on the Lord's will in the reformation of his church, not the word per se, but the worship, the worship. And we cannot, of course, talk about the worship of God without talking about the word. But you will see today again how the Lord reforms his church in the areas where it needs reform. He loves his church. He will not leave her to herself. He is a near and present father. He will have her dressed in that adornment, which makes her look awfully much like her Savior. Let us pray. Gracious God, help us now upon the reading of your holy word and its preaching. We ask that it would please you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit to be mighty and merciful among us, to attend to the hearing of our sons and our daughters, to hold us in the grip and sway of reverence and attention to your word. For indeed, it is the voice of one who we desire to hear, the voice that all the children recognize, the voice of their master. Lord, we pray that by your spirit we would recognize the authority therein and that we would be freshly subdued and ruled by your word for our great joy and happiness as we even recognize in hearing it that we are coming out of error, coming out of the darkness, standing in the light. Oh, Lord, help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews chapter 12, reading from verse 26. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Leviticus chapter 10. Verses 1 through 7. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, and laid incense on it, and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And the fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died 
before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eliezer and Ithamar, his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose, and do not tear your clothes, lest you die, and wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. This is God's word. 500 years ago, Martin Luther rightly said, the mass of the Roman Catholic Church ought to be abolished, for on account of all the horrors of the mass, God could justly have drowned and destroyed the whole world, close quote. What horror is Luther referring to? He is referring to the teaching by the Roman Church that the sacrifice of Christ continues in the mass. Just like Nadab and Abihu, worship in the mass is some of the Roman church's unauthorized fire. They do what God has not commanded. In fact, still today, the Roman Catholic Catechism says, quote, the sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. Christ still offers himself for sins through the ministry of the priests. A sacrifice for sins is celebrated in the mass, close quote. That is in their catechism. This means the sacrifice of Christ is ongoing for them. It is not finished for them, which makes many Roman Catholics think that participating in the Mass is what frees them from danger with God. This keeps many of them in the pews, but they do not have assurance that their sins are already forgiven. Their church does not want them to have that assurance. But our scripture says, Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews 9, 26. Beloved, it is God's will in the worship of him that the finished work of Christ on the cross be declared and given to the people by a simple word in the gospel. The mass is a refusal to do so. The mass is a refusal to give so. The mass declares Christ's offering for sin is not finished. In this way, the mass refuses to give the only thing that faith can really lay hold of and rest upon, the finished work of Christ, crucified, for our sins. It is no wonder Luther went on to say, the mass is the greatest blasphemy of God 
and the highest idolatry upon earth, an abomination the like of which has never been in Christendom since the time of the apostles. But how did it happen? How does it continue to happen in the worship of God? How does the Mass continue 500 years now after Martin Luther, John Knox, Ulrich Zwingli, John Calvin, after they turned on all the floodlights of Scripture to expose the idolatry of the Mass? How does it continue? The answer to that question is the answer to this question. What made Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron the priest, what made them take up their censers and bring unauthorized fire before the Lord in worship? Well, one half of the answer is because they did not closely follow the commands of God's word. This is stated in verse 1 of our text. What the two brothers offered to God as worship, the Lord had not commanded. This is the fundamental error of all corrupt worship. And this is where the mass comes from, refusing to follow the commands of God for worship, refusing to do only that which God's word says to do. Which brings us to the other half of the answer. You knew there was another half coming, right? The other half, worship is corrupted when men do what they want what they desire, what makes sense to them, what seems honorable to them. Nadab and Abihu thought their unauthorized fire was as good as God's fire. Their problem was not ignoring God. They weren't running away from the tent of meeting, later to be called the tabernacle, later to be called the temple. They weren't running away to Vegas. They were taking up their censers. Their problem was not ignoring God. Their problem was approaching God with unauthorized fire. They had sincerity, but not authority. They were confident what they were doing was as good as anything God had commanded. But it was not what God had commanded. This is where all corrupt worship comes from. We end up valuing our own sincerity and our own preferences, but God does not value them just because we do. He values his own commands and our obedience to them. We know that he prefers obedience rather than sacrifice. See, that is true communion with God, to be of one mind with him, and his mind is revealed in his word. Beloved, I set these things before you today to remind you that the reformation of the church was never about recovering just one doctrine, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. The reformation, as all the reformers said, was also about recovering the true worship of God. 500 years ago, the reformers saw how deeply offensive Christian worship was to God. Hundreds of superstitions had been added to the worship of God over the years. Special days, prayers to the saints, special 
candles, statues, images, special ceremonies, special actions of the priests leading the worship, and, of course, the mass itself, and much more. For the honor of God, the church needed a reformation in her public worship. She still needs this today. She will need it tomorrow. There is job security in reforming the worship of the church. So in the passage before you this morning, the Lord shows us that the reformation of worship is always important to him. It is a lie to say we can worship God any way we want as long as our intentions are good. The scripture before you shows the lie in that. What happens to Nadab, what happens to Abihu, shows the lie. Now think with me. Think with me about who these two brothers were. They were the sons of Aaron the priest. Aaron was the brother of Moses. And Aaron, along with his four sons, had been appointed by God to be priest of God in Israel. They would serve in the tabernacle the place of worship. By actions and words prescribed by God, the priest would keep the people near to God and God near to his people. The priest would maintain the relationship God wants with his church. If God was not interested in sinful men, there would be no priest. But he creates them. He calls them. He appoints them, anoints them, consecrates them because The Lord wants to be near his people and make them fit to be near to him. So the priest would maintain the relationship God wants with his church. Nearness and holiness, communion and consecration, a bond of fellowship and faithfulness foreshadowing the eternal world where that bond would be perfect and never at risk. In Exodus 30, 30, God says to Moses, you shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. Four sons. So here's the point, though. Nadab, Abihu, were not just little children running around in the tabernacle grabbing things without knowledge. They were men, grown men. They were priests of God. They had experience. They had a commission. They had training. According to Exodus 24, they had been called up to Mount Sinai along with the 70 elders and Moses to see God. Nadab, Abihu were there. And according to Leviticus 9.24, the last verse of the previous chapter, both of these brothers were present when the first offering made by Aaron for the people when it was first accepted by the Lord. Leviticus 9.24 says, quote, Fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar, and when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. If anyone in this ancient church of God had the right to do something new and different in the worship of God, it would have been 
these two brothers, or the other two brothers, Eleazar and Ithamar, or their father, Aaron. But we can see from what happens to these men, having an important position in the church gives no man the right to deviate from the commands of God in the worship of God. It won't do to say that you are a pope. It won't do to say that you are a pastor, that you are a cardinal or a bishop or an elder. You have no right to deviate from the commands of God and the worship of God regardless of your position. In fact, you are in that position to not deviate. That is the substance of your call. Only God has the authority to tell us when a change has come to the way we worship him. And he told us of such a change. Do you know about it? God told us that a change had come to the way we worship him when Christ came. Hebrews 10.18 says, Now that our sins and lawless deeds have been forgiven by Christ's death, there is no longer any offering for sin in earthly temples or on earthly altars. No mass. Only God has authority over the worship of God. Now what changes, what innovations did Nadab and Abihu make to the worship of God? Well, the text says their innovation was not in the censer that they used. Their innovation was not in the incense that they used. God had commanded both the use of a censer and God had commanded the use of incense. Their innovation was in the fire. The text says they offered unauthorized fire. The King James translates it strange fire. The Living Bible, unholy fire. The Lexham English Bible, illegitimate fire. Nadab and Abihu used burning coals in their censers that they were not supposed to use. <clears throat> we know from Leviticus 16.12, a priest was required to use coals from the fire on the altar. That was the coal that was to go in the censer of the priest. The fire on the altar had been lit by God himself. I just read it to you at verse 24, the previous chapter. Fire came out from the Lord to the altar, and that fire was lit. It was a fire from heaven. It was a holy fire, a consecrated fire. The fire confirmed that God's anger against sin had been rightly, though temporarily, satisfied. Because the fire had come from the Lord, it had consumed the offering on the altar, and we could all fall and say, Amen. The Lord is pleased. Now Nadab and Abihu took their fire from somewhere else and brought it before the Lord. They dishonored the Lord's fire in doing so. They made light of God's own judgment against sin in doing so. The only judgment which allowed God's people to enter a joyful and hopeful communion with him was the judgment of God's fire on that altar. We could even fairly say that Nadab and Abihu were mistreating Christ because what was offered on the stone altar 
was always pointing to Christ crucified. Jesus would be the ultimate and the only sacrifice that fully and finally quenched the fire of God's wrath against sin. So when these two priests went and got a different fire, they were mistreating the promise of a coming sacrifice that would end all sacrifices and end the Mass. Here's the bottom line. The text says, Nadab and Abihu did what God had not commanded them. And for this reason, the fire of God came out a second time and consumed these two brothers. They died right there before the Lord. And it appears in the text that their clothes were not burned. The clothes they wore were properly worn. They were in an office they had been called to by God. The clothes did not burn because they remained coats around the body to, to be carried out. What burned was the men, because that's where the guilt lied. Beloved, let's take a moment and understand how this scene is meant to reform the worship of God. We are to learn that what is commanded by God is true worship, and what has not been commanded is false worship. Sincerity zeal, hunger, enthusiasm, none of these themselves are the standard for the worship of God. You know, it may be the case, we just don't know, that Nadab and Abihu said, hey, let's, let's go in there and look at what's in the holy place. It may be that they thought they wanted to get a better look It may have simply been that. But the bottom line for the church of Christ to learn from God's word here is that no matter what is rattling around in our heart, if it is not commanded, it is false and not to be done. The standard is what God has commanded to be done But does God command a sincere heart set upon Christ by faith? Absolutely he does. You cannot cast away sincerity. You must have a new heart. There is an outward and an inward to right worship. You cannot use the right outward worship as a way to dismiss the wrong inward worship. God commands many specific practices even yet today under the new covenant. I already showed you by Hebrews 10 that he no longer requires an offering on an earthly altar in an earthly temple. He changed that by his own word on the satisfaction of his own son, the final offering. But even still, he commands specific practices even yet under the new covenant. He commands the public reading of scripture. 1 Timothy 4:13. He commands the confession of sin, Psalm 32:5. He commands the preaching of the word, 2 Timothy 4:2. He commands the praise of his people, Ephesians 5:19. He commands the prayers and petitions, 
1 Timothy 2.1. He commands that worship be conducted by ordained men. 1 Timothy 2.12. He commands the proper use of the two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Matthew 28.19, 1 Corinthians 11.26. But if God has not commanded it, it ought not to be done. God has not commanded skits in the worship of God. God has not commanded special days of worship for the worship and honor of God. God has not commanded that we kneel to take the bread and the wine. There are many things that God has not commanded that churches of Jesus Christ do that profit them nothing in the honor of God, regardless of the condition of their heart. Let us learn this. God is to be honored outwardly, inwardly. A worship practice must be required by God's word, either mandated expressly or by good and necessary consequence. Now, if you go back, just to underscore this very point, if you go back to Leviticus 8 and Leviticus 9, as the people are moving toward their first worship service, and you keep hearing, if you read those two chapters, the same phrase over and over again. They did as the Lord commanded. The phrase is repeated in Leviticus 8.4, And then you get to Leviticus 10. Nadab, Abihu, and there's a sudden crash. Something breaks. We hear that the priests, not the people, the church leaders, the priests did what was not commanded them. Now, beloved, before we think, this is the Old Testament, and God is not that serious anymore about his worship, we really should remember what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. A husband and a wife dropped dead because they chose to show their public devotion to God under the guise of deception and misrepresentation. Acts 5. We should also remember what Paul said to the church at Corinth. Many believers there at Corinth were reckless in the public worship of God particularly as it concerned their participation in the Lord's Supper. Some were showing up early because they didn't have to work like the slaves who populated that church. They showed up early and took the Lord's Supper before the whole body was there. It was selfish. Paul calls them out for it, and he says to them, this is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. 1 Corinthians 11.30. And we should not forget what we already heard today from Hebrews 12:28. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. God is not less serious now about what we owe him in worship. In fact, because Christ has come, the apostle who wrote Hebrews argues God is even more serious 
Because now that the final propitiation has been offered for sin, to neglect and mistreat Christ in the worship of God is a much more severe crime against God than even that which could be registered under the Mosaic law. Read about it in Hebrews 10, 28 and 29. Here is the point. Christian worship is regulated by the commandments of God. If we have not a command for it, we shouldn't do it. Why do you want to worship? Isn't it to please God? Yeah, but I'm so pleased by doing... I know, I know, but beloved, we are worshiping to please God. Christian worship is to be centered upon God, his glory, his fame, his name, not on the things that we like to offer God. That could be one of the greatest steps of sanctification in your life. That Christian worship is not centered upon the things you want to offer him. It is centered on what he wants from us. That's true worship. And it's revealed in our text. Look at verse 3. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. There are some commentators that really want to give Aaron a hard time and say that he's like a a steam engine about ready to blow. That's not in the text. Now, it is true he needed He needed Moses to hustle over and put his hand on his arm, maybe, and say these words. But Aaron held his peace. He's the priest of God, and he knows that he is in the ministry and service of worship at that very minute. And it is not the moment for personal grief. Granted, the Lord says in the remainder of the passage, Take the bodies out and let the congregation outside the tent of meeting grieve. The Lord is not taking away grief. But the Lord is keeping his people from being consumed by keeping his priest in his service. This is why our Lord Jesus Christ, who had a mother, who had dear friends called disciples, This is why he did not regard their earthly needs and refused to go to the cross. He turned his mother over to his friend John, and he set his face like flint to the cross, even as women wailed upon the Via Della Rosa. He continued. He is the priest of God, completing the reconciliation of God with his sinful people. But here, in verse 3, I really want to focus on one thing. Christian worship is God-centered worship. God will not tolerate man's folly just so man can be near to God. 
For what God would we then be near to if he tolerated our folly? God will not become lesser of a God so that he can tolerate our lesser manners of worship. He must remain God, or we have no God to draw near to. Nadab and Abihu were trying to penetrate deeper into God's presence, but God could not become less godly to accommodate them. He must maintain his glory at all times, or else he not only ceases to be God before himself, he ceases to be God for us, his people. He will not do that. He cannot do that. He cannot cease to be God. So even retribution is necessary for God's people to be brought truly near to God forever. And here's where I want to give you the most beautiful and wonderful encouragement I can. You and I have enough worship sense that they would fill the Encyclopedia Britannica and then another volume and then another volume Come back tomorrow and I'll still be saying, in another volume, our worship, our worship sins are like the demon legion, many. It is a wonder that the retribution of God has not fallen upon us. For we ourselves have gathered many times to worship him. And many times the outward and the inward have not been right to God. There have been times where I have been in a worship service and I was thinking about how I was going to mow my lawn in a new way. That's violating the third commandment, taking the name of the Lord in vain. Because everybody is seeing me at public worship thinking that I am giving honor to God and inside I'm giving honor to Toro. That's a lawnmower manufacturer. <coughs> Brothers and sisters, we have a legion of worship sins, and in Christ we have now all stepped up into the title priests of God. Peter tells us we are a kingdom of priests under Jesus Christ. Where's the retribution? Well, let me tell you, you have been crucified for your worship sins. The wrath of God has come forth from heaven and consumed the offering. You have been crucified in Christ. It is because of Jesus Christ that you can enter into a worship hall like this today, knowing that you are a mess in your private life, knowing that your mind is so easily inattentive, knowing that you're awfully interested in your lawn, and even grieving that, but knowing that Jesus Christ is a sufficient sacrifice, that your retribution has been exhausted. And so even if the Lord must put you to death for your worship sins, like he did many at the church of Corinth, you are not going to be lost from the Savior. <coughs> you may be an example for those who you will be separated from but you will not be lost 
from the lamb who was slain for the worship sins of men. Beloved, make no mistake. Look at the text, verse 3. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. I will not change to accommodate men. Make, but make no mistake, in those words, the Lord clearly says he desires man to be near him. The whole system of worship under Moses was a testimony of God's desire to have a people for himself and with himself. And it was all a foreshadowing of the coming offering that would bring us near him in a way we had never been near and keep us near him forever, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Do we need a modern reformation of worship in the church of Jesus Christ? Absolutely, we do. We do, beloved, because we, as many men wiser than I have pointed out, because we in the 21st century American church are returning slowly to the worship of the medieval church. We are returning to a worship of God that is governed by the commandments of men and not the commandments of God. We are returning to the worship of God that is governed by an, a sensory overload experiment and experience where things are, bef are flashing before our eyes, where people are dancing and laughing, and it is all so that we can worship our offerings, offerings not commanded by God. Here's how this works. Men want to give God their talent. They want to give God their performance. They want to give God their remarkable skills at arranging lights and sounds and fascinating things that feel like entertainment. They want to give that all to God. And in the process, what they are really worshiping, what they are really adoring, what they are really using as a mediator are the things that their flesh has created. They are patting themselves on the back for how meaningful and available they have made God through their works. Sinclair Ferguson, no slouch on this very point, said these words in his little book, The Grace of Repentance, page 45. Worship is increasingly becoming a spectator event of visual and sensory power rather than a verbal event in which we engage in a deep social dialogue with the triune God. He adds, contemporary evangelicalism tends to focus on what happens in a spectacle rather than what is heard in worship. Aesthetics, be they artistic or musical, are given priority over bowing underneath the authority of what God says. More and more is seen, less and less is heard. There is a sensory feast, a sensory feast, but a famine of the word. <clears throat> Beloved, this, of course, is a kind of worship that men love. But it is not the worship commanded by God. Luther made the very interesting point that if you had found him in 1515, two years before his 95 theses went on the door, if you had found him in 1515 and said to him what he was now saying 20 years later about the Mass, 
he might have punched you in the lights. He adored the mass. He said, you would not have been allowed to take it away from me. And he says, now that our words are taking it away from the Lord's sheep for their own good, he says, now they think that we are the ones who are the abomination because we have come to take away that which they love. Beloved, this same point can be made for modern worship. What we really need help with is a confidence that worship is only that which we have command for, and it is for God then alone and not for us. And when it is for God, it is then us who come away greatly helped and greatly blessed. Because when God is the center of our worship and not our talents, not our performances, not our lights, when God is the center of our worship, we come away (coughs) out of ourselves, not fixed on ourselves. We come away in the adoration of God and not the adoration of men who performed for us. (coughs) Beloved, praise God. Praise God that here in Leviticus 10, There is divine retribution against the flesh works of men and the will worship of men. For we see in these priests being slain a foreshadowing of the great high priest being slain under the retribution of God. Did Jesus have something wrong in his worship of God? Not at all. All of our worship sins were piled upon him, and he was smothered and crushed to death so that we could come to the worship of the living and true and holy and high God who does not change, but who wills us be near him forever. He has done it through putting his priest in the grave and raising his priest to the sky in your own nature. God is holy. He is high. He is right. He is to be adored and worshiped. We can do it, yes, even joyfully without dread because of Jesus Christ. But understand, just because all of our sins have been vacated and removed before God's holy bar of justice and judgment, because all our, just because all our sins have been forgiven in Christ is no grounds to continue in our sin. No grounds to be flippant and disregard his honor. May he help us all grow in the very stature of his son who worshiped him ardently and orderly. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for the text of your word before us. We pray that you would continue to reform each of us in our own thinking, in our own practice, in our own heart for you. Lord, help us grow even this week more in wanting our worship to be all about you, centered upon you, 
Lord, we do thank you that Jesus Christ is at your right hand, not in the nature of a beast, not in the nature of an angel, not in the nature of some alien, not in a nature which we have not yet known or seen. He is at your right hand in our nature, in our humanity, bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh. He has passed through the full retribution of your anger against our worship sins. How this liberates our heart from fear, from even the regrets that we have not fully pleased you as we ought. Oh, Lord, we thank you that we can again renew and revive our zeal for you in the worship of God because of Christ crucified and risen for us. Help us believe these wonderful things and help us be reformed in the worship of God. In Jesus' name, amen.